Well, what would you think if when you arrived to church today and you looked on the roof, uh, instead of seeing a big cross, there was a giant noose? Uh, what would you do if uh, the minister walked in the church this morning and instead of having his you know, lovely cross around his neck, he had an electric chair hanging around his neck? Or how would you react if you uh, looked at the, the posters on the wall, the pictures that we decorate the building, and uh, instead of having crosses, they had pictures of the gas chambers from Nazi Germany? Uh, that would be quite shocking, wouldn't it? Uh, that would be revol- revolting, I think, repulsive. Uh, you'd probably think that the members of this church were pretty insane, wouldn't you? And you'd be wondering whether the pastor had lost his mind. But in actual fact, in the first century, that was not a dream, not just an imagination. That would have been the reality. See, crucifixion was the most brutal, abhorrent method of execution that the Romans could think up. It was so bad that it was reserved only for slaves and aliens uh, and, and barbarians. Uh, the average person would not even mention crucifixion uh, in polite conversation. Uh, and so you can imagine how, how offensive, how shocking it must have been uh, when the early Christians decided to choose the cross as the symbol of the Christian faith. Now, they were saying that a crucified man was the king and the saviour of the world. Well, what about today? Uh, does the church still believe that the cross is the centrepiece of the Christian faith? Uh, do Christians still act as if the cross is the defining reality of our lives? Now, I think for many of us, and very sadly so, that the cross has become nothing but a fashion accessory for us. You know, something to hang around your neck, to, to hang around in your car, maybe to put up on the wall uh, of your house but nothing more than that. Uh, Perhaps even sadder is the reality that even in many churches, the importance of the cross has been lost. Uh, Now, of course, no Christian is going to deny that the cross is important. They'll they'll point to their church roof and say, look, we've got a cross up there. Uh, Look, our minister's wearing a cross around his neck. But, But instead of preaching the crucified Christ, many churches have moved on from the cross to talk about other things, things like God's love and social justice and helping us have good marriages and helping the poor. Because one thing hasn't changed about the cross, and that is if you really understand what it is, it is still as offensive and foolish as it was in the first century. Uh, Nothing will make people more angry than when you preach to them the cross. Uh, Nothing will make you more mocked by your friends than if you tell them about the crucified Jesus. And so the temptation is for us to to take on worldly values, to stop listening to the Bible, to start listening to the world, to live by the wisdom of the world, rather than the foolishness of the cross. What place does the cross have in your Christianity? Is the cross at the centre of your Christian faith? That's the question I want us to consider this morning as we look at this passage. Uh, now we began uh, last week, of course, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and we saw that uh, the Corinthian church was a church that had lots of problems and yet it was one that richly enjoyed God's grace. Uh, Paul reminded them, of course, that the, teacher didn't belong, uh, the, the church didn't belong to any one of their teachers. It was the church of God 
not their leader's church. And they also reminded them that they were, although they were enriched in all speech and, and wisdom and knowledge, all of that came from the grace of God, which was why Paul thanked God, not because of the greatness of their leaders. But now as we reach verse 10, uh, the thanksgiving is gone, is over, and Paul deals with the problems head on. Uh, and the big problem that Paul has to address with the Corinthian church is this, that they are full of divisions. Now have a look again there at verse 10 and we'll see it there. Divisions in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Kephas, or I follow Christ. Uh, now we, we know, as is mentioned here in, in, in verse 11, that, that Paul has uh, two sources of knowledge about this Corinthian church. Uh, one of them is a letter that they wrote him, uh, but the other one is from, uh, from Chloe's household, these members of the church. And Chloe tells Paul that the Corinthian church is divided. They are full of, of uh, fighting factions who all think that they're better than one another. Uh, see, what are the Corinthians doing? Uh, what they're doing is they're, they're lining up uh, behind their favourite Christian leader. Uh, and some are lining up after Paul. Some are lining behind Apollos, some are behind Kephas, that's Peter. Uh, and the emphasis here is, is on the I. You know, I am of Paul. You know, I am so good because I am of Paul. Or I am of Apollos. Uh, maybe it's something like this. Oh, you follow Andrew Chia. Well, I follow Don Carson. Aren't I so good? Well, I follow John Piper. Beat that. And then there's the super holy ones in the congregation who say, well, you think Don Carson and John Piper are good? Well, I follow Christ. Uh, do you see what they're doing? Uh, they're boasting of the, the wisdom and the power of their particular teacher and looking down on all the rest. And it's so terribly proud and arrogant that it's an absolute disgrace on the church. Uh, and in, in fact, it's a denial of the very gospel itself. So Paul appeals to them there in verse 10 to agree in the Lord. He, he appeals to them with the name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by all the authority that he has an, as an apostle, to agree in the Lord, or literally to speak the same. See, instead of having all of these different teachers who are saying different things, I'm better because of my teaching method, they're meant to speak the same. They're meant to have a sameness of gospel speech. Uh, and as they agree on the gospel, that's what's going to create this united mind and purpose that will flow from it. In other words, they need to be united on the preaching of the gospel and then they will be united in, the, in, the, in their congregations. But as it is, their speaking is actually destroying the congregation rather than building it up. And so Paul is indignant. Verse 13, look how he responds. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into the name of Paul? Each time the answer we're meant to get is no. They're rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? No, of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? 
No. No, no, no. It was Christ who was crucified for them. It was Christ's name that they were baptised into. It was Christ, Christ, Christ. You see, their focus should have been on, on Christ, not on their particular leaders. See, despite all of their, their, their pride and, and all of their gifts, these divisions and rivalries are actually a terrible condemnation on this church in Corinth. They may be the most gifted church in the Bible, but I tell you, they are also the most unspiritual of them all. And so we are, Paul puts himself forward as an, an example and he shows, Paul shows in the, in the coming verses uh, what his example was, verse 14 to 17. See, when Paul visited Corinth the first time, uh, was Paul trying to start a Paul group? Uh, was Paul trying to make uh, everyone follow him and make a point to baptise them so that they would all know that he was the, the really good leader and they would all follow him? Was that what Paul was doing? Well, look what Paul says in verse 14. I thank God... I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you may say I was baptised into, into my name. I did b- baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I do not know uh, whether I baptised anyone else. Now, you think Paul wasn't trying to start a Paul group when he visited Corinth. Now, Paul wasn't somehow trying to be better and more impressive than his co-workers, Kephas and Apollos and so on. Uh, the reality is that, that Paul didn't really care in the slightest about whether he baptised anyone at all. Uh, and, and here's one of uh, my favourite things about the Bible. Uh, this is wonderful. Uh, the Spirit actually, uh, through Paul, has inspired his forgetfulness in order to communicate uh, how unimportant baptism is. Isn't that wonderful? Paul's forgetfulness is inspired by the Spirit to show that they should have not been worried about that but the preaching of the gospel of the cross of Christ. See what Paul was on about? Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, Paul had one focus, and one focus only, and that was preaching the gospel of the cross of Christ. And for Paul, that immediately excluded two other things. It immediately He didn't care about baptism, who he did or didn't baptise, and he didn't care uh, whether he sounded wise and eloquent and persuasive in his words or not. Uh, That wasn't important at all. See, here's something that we need to get uh, as Christians. Uh, Being a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ is not about being the most funny and entertaining speaker. Uh, <laughs> it's not about you know, walking around the stage and, and telling stories that, that has everyone captivated by how interesting it is. Uh, and it's not about having a really clever uh, you know, sermon outline that has three P's and two S's, so it's really memorable. And likewise, we, we need to be aware of, of, of the pastors like, like in this congregation in Corinth who are more concerned with building their own church than building God's church. Now, see, the focus of, of, of the Corinthians on the greatness of their teachers and their eloquence and their wisdom and their baptism was, was not spiritual. It was worldly. And it undermined everything 
that the cross stood for. All Paul's focus was not on his you know, flashy, uh, entertaining behaviour, it was on his message. It was on the cross of Jesus. And that is, if we are listening to preaching, or whether we are preachers ourselves, that is where our focus should be, on the message of the cross. Uh, now, wouldn't it be nice to say that uh, the Corinthian church was the only church in the world that had divisions and factions in it? Uh, you know, the only one where people were lining up under their own favourite teacher. That would be nice, isn't it? But of course that's not true. Uh, in this denomination, uh, in this country, uh, perhaps even in this cathedral, that is not true. Uh, people do line up after their favourite preachers, don't they? Uh, whether it's Joel Osteen or Joseph Prince or Rob Bell or, or whoever it is. Uh, even if we are ev- evangelicals, we do that. As I mentioned, I'm a Carson man or I'm a Piper man or I'm an Andrew Chia man. <laughs> Maybe even at this church you have people say, you know, I really like Tim Phillips' preaching because it's in that lovely British voice and it's really easy to understand Or I like Andrew because he's really loud and passionate when he preaches. But the important thing is not not the speaker, is it? It's not his wisdom or eloquence in sharing the message. It's not that at all. Thinking like that will create divisions in our church. It will make factions where we all line up under our favourite person. That was the issue in Corinth. And it had a deeper uh, source to it. Divisions was what it looked like on the outside. But on the inside, what was the problem? It was worldliness. It was worldliness. They were looking at the church and looking at their leaders with worldly eyes and they'd forgotten the cross of Jesus. Do you notice how Paul tries to correct this problem? He does it the same as he tries to correct all of the issues in this letter, as you'll find out. What does he do? He reminds them of the gospel. Uh, Their divisions are symptoms of a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the gospel in their life. And so, in the end, every issue of behaviour in our church, every moral failure, in the end, is actually a problem with our theology or our lack of it. Every failure shows that we have misunderstood the gospel or or ignored it uh, in our lives. And so that brings us to our our second point where Paul uh, tackles this theology of the cross. And he he talks about the foolish wisdom of the cross. Uh, Paul really has three main points here. Uh, He wants to explain that the message of the cross spells the end to all human wisdom and power. Now that the cross redefines wisdom and folly, power and weakness. And instead of boasting in their leaders' wisdom and power, they should be boasting in the wisdom and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins there with this wonderful verse in verse 18. This is a good one to memorise. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, do you remember the Corinthians were dividing over their particular leaders and we divide in our own ways ourselves. But God's word says there's only one division that really matters. 
and, and, and it's not who's, which leader you have. The only division that matters is how you perceive the cross of Christ. Do you perceive the cross as foolishness or do you perceive the cross as power of God? Now, the answer to that question will determine whether you are amongst the perishing or you are amongst the saved. You don't have to look too far to see the first group, the, the group that sees it as folly. That's exactly what's going on with people like Richard Dawkins, isn't it? You know, they, they, they look at the cross, right? they look at Jesus and they think, this is all just a load of, you know, it's irrational, it, it, it's intolerable, it's just unbearable that Christians could, could possibly believe these things. They must have switched off their brain. How unwise are they? It's a religious as well, isn't it? The, the Muslim will look at the cross and they will tell you how utterly foolish it is. How could you believe that the Son of God died on a cross? It, it, it's intolerable. How could that possibly be? Uh, in fact, the scripture verse emphasises that people would think like this, that, that would think it was folly and what God would do about it. Chapter 1, verse 19, uh, quoting from Isaiah 29 For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Uh, Paul says that it has always been God's plan that the wise, wise in the world's eyes, would be destroyed. Uh, Now that quote that comes from Isaiah 29, uh, we didn't read it, but let me fill you in. The people of, of God are under the judgment of God in that chapter and God is bringing the Assyrians against them. But their leaders think that they are so cunning and wise that with their political willings and dealings and and their their wisdom that they have from God, that they can save themselves and none. Everything's okay. But God said he'd destroy the wisdom of those wise people and judgment would come. And that's exactly what happened in those days. But Paul is saying here that that was pointing forward to the time when the cross, would shatter once and for all any human pretensions to wisdom and power. See, God has set up things in such a way that you will never come to a true knowledge of God through scientific investigation or philosophical reflection or religious invention. God has made it so that that knowing God is not dependent on how smart you are or how big is your IQ, or how hard you work to find it out, God has set it up so it's only through the revelation of God in the cross. See, but the problem is to a world that is so consumed with with lust, with, with power, uh, significance, with greatness, the, the cross just looks weak. It looks stupid. It looks crazy. In short, it's folly to the perishing And then we have the flip side, verse 18 again. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, Now, you'd expect it to say the wisdom of God there, wouldn't you? That would be the exact opposite of, uh, you know, uh, we have folly and we have uh, wisdom, right? That's what we'd expect. But that's not what it says, is it? It says, The cross is the power of God. I want to ask you, can you think of anything more powerful 
than the cross of Jesus. Now that might sound like a, a, a paradox, seeing the cross is about the weakness of Jesus, but can you think of anything more powerful than the cross of Jesus? Because in one moment, God is able to overthrow the wisdom of every wise person in every age and at the very same time save everyone who believes in Jesus. Uh, isn't that amazing? Uh, what, what human philosophy, what, what scientific investigation, what religious invention is unable to do, God can do in a moment at the cross of Jesus. Paul drives home the point in verse 20. Uh, some more rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And there's three, great, three groups of people here. We've got the wise ones first. Uh, and, and Paul probably has in mind here the great philosophical schools that were in uh, the, amongst the Greeks at that time. The, you know, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the, uh, the Platonists, and, and probably especially the, the, the Sophists, who uh, Sophists literally means wise ones. Uh, the Greeks were renowned for their pursuit of systems that explained the world, uh, worldviews, if you like, that explain life and death and the universe and everything. The Greeks loved that kind of thing and they called it Wisdom. But through the cross, God has nullified once and for all all of those schools and made them into nothing. Now, and it's the same for all of our modern worldviews as well. I mean, you think about it. Does, does communism lead you to the cross? Now, will hedonism lead you to a crucified king? Now, will democracy make you realise that salvation only comes through, through crucified Jesus? Will scientific investigation make you conclude uh, that Jesus died as the saviour of the world? It, it won't, will it? The answer is no every time. Because God has made it so that people like Richard Dawkins will end up being fools because of the cross. Uh, the second group there is the scribe. Uh, and here he has in mind the, the Jewish uh, religious expert in the law. Uh, so the, the Jewish uh, religious leaders of Jesus' time, they obviously didn't uh, believe in a crucified Messiah. Uh, that's why they killed him in the first place. But neither do any of the other great religions of the world, do they? Uh, Islam or, or Buddhism or Hinduism or whichever religion you pick, none of them will ever lead you to a crucified Jesus. And finally, there's the debater of this age as well. That's the, the, the orator, uh, the rhetorician who used his fancy, eloquent language without often much uh, care for truth at all. Did that eloquent you know, speech lead them to the cross? Again, the answer is no. Whether it's secular wisdom, whether it is religious wisdom, none of it leads to the cross. And so God has nullified it all and made it into just folly. Do you see what the cross does? The cross turns the world's value system on its head. Uh, all that the world values as everything, the cross makes nothing. Everything the world values as nothing, the cross turns into everything. Now, see, you want to see real wisdom? Look at the cross. Look at the wisdom of God at the cross. 
God is so wise. He can make the fools into the wise ones and he can make the wise ones into fools. It's amazing. But I want to ask you a question. Hopefully if you agree with me up to this point, that's what the passage says. Let me ask you this. If that is the case, if God has nullified the wisdom of the world, then why do we keep bringing it into our church? A famous person in church history said, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And he was right. See, sometimes we adopt the world's ways, don't we? Uh, We adopt the world's message. Uh, You know, we talk about God's love and how God is going to to bless you and make your life happy and successful. That sounds like Chinese New Year, doesn't it? We always want to tone things down a little bit. Uh, Because we know if we talk about the cross, well, we don't want to get people too upset, do we? We don't want to offend them. We don't want to sound foolish towards them. Let's tone it down a bit and talk about God's love. We know that the the cross speaks of our total depravity, how we are totally sinful and there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation before God. The the, the cross says Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, none of those things are very popular. They break down our human pride and they leave us with nothing. And so we turn it down. Or sometimes we adopt worldly methods, don't we? Even if we keep the message. You know, instead of preaching the cross, to try and convert people. Uh, We think that we can get people into our churches by having awesome music, you know, fantastic 20,000 ringgit amps and so on. Uh, Maybe a smoke machine would help. Uh, Maybe we can put that on the feedback form for Andrew. Uh, Maybe we could have some flashy flyers, uh, some great coffee after church, or or a brand new website. I think we're building one for Smack at the moment. (laughs) And it's all foolishness to think in that way. Now, now, don't get me wrong, all of those things are good in their place uh, and probably Snack does need a new website, but the question is this, where is our confidence? Now, when the rubber hits the road, do we really believe that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God? Do we believe that? Do we really believe verse 21 when God says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Don't we believe that people won't be saved through our smartness or our worldly methods? Don't we believe that God graciously saved those who believe in the foolish cross? Don't we believe that our only hope and confidence is in Jesus crucified? One of the fads that's going around at the moment is those you know, church growth manuals. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them on the bookshelves. They're probably in Canaan Land. What those things always say is, here's the latest management technique that you can use to grow your church. And really I think you can often throw all of those in the bin because you only need one page for your book. You just print out 1 Corinthians 1 and preach the crucified Christ. If you want to grow your church, there's no shortcuts to it except preaching Jesus. If the crucified Jesus is not central in our church, then we're in deep, deep trouble. We're in trouble becoming like the Corinthians with all their problems. Without the cross, we have nothing because the cross is everything. Well, that's the negative one. The cross has nullified human wisdom. 
Uh, but Paul puts it in the positive as well in verses 22 to 25 where he talks about Christ as the power and the wisdom of God. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now here we come back to a familiar theme with the Jews. Here the the cross runs against everything that the Jews looked for. The Jews were expecting a Messiah that came in power and glory and would have all of these signs to prove who he was. The last thing they expected was a crucified Christ. Uh, that was a contradiction in terms to them, you know, like frozen steam uh, or a godly rapist. That's what the cross was like. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? That's what the, Jew, what the Jews thought. Uh, the Greeks were the same. They exalted power and human reason and majesty. They liked the Caesars, not shameful, humiliated criminals. Whether religious or secular, the cross, is so preposterous, irrational and absurd it could have made, been, been, been come up with an egocentric maniac. But here's the thing. Now, just because the world sees the cross as foolishness and weakness doesn't mean that it is. See, the cross of Christ is, uh, according to verse 24, the power of God and the wisdom of God that is powerful because it can save people from eternal condemnation and it's wise because it teaches you how to truly live rightly in this world. See, the world has its system upside down. It values the great and the significant and the powerful, but the cross tells us that what matters is sacrifice and love and humble service. The gospel is true wisdom, is what this is saying. It brings peace to our relationship with God and peace to our relationship with one another. In other words, it's the solution to divisions in your church. But the question again that we need to come back to is this. Do you see the cross as foolishness or as wisdom? Do you perceive the cross as foolishness or wisdom? Like the Corinthians, your behaviour will tell the story. Now, when you're at work and your colleague says to you, you're so stupid for believing in Jesus, are you silent? Do you try and make things more palatable for them, make it sound better, or do you boldly tell them of the cross? That will tell you. Or when you're sharing the gospel with your friends and you're inviting them to church, do you just tell them about the nice food and fellowship that they'll have at the meeting or do you tell them about the preaching of the cross that will be there? Uh, when, when the pastors of church here stand up and they preach sin and judgment and salvation only at the cross of Christ, do you somehow, are, are you happy about that? Or are you there squirming in your seat saying, you know, Andrew, I wish you would turn it down a little bit with this cross thing. I've got my friend sitting next to me. I'm asking the question, do we really believe that the crucified king is the wisdom and power of God or are we siding with the world 
in seeing it as foolishness. Your answer will be seen in the way that you live, the speakers that you like, the church that you choose to go to, the way that you go about your evangelism. It will be plain for all to see whether you are worldly or the cross has penetrated your heart like it did for Paul. Well, if the Corinthians understood all of these things, they would never have been boasting so arrogantly and proudly as they were about their teachers and their wisdom. They would have been glorifying God through Christ. And so we finally arrive to our final point there, uh, that the cross should eliminate proud boasting and bring humility before God. Have a look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, it should have been so obvious to the Corinthian church that God didn't care about their powerful and eloquent speech because you just had to look at the rabble that was in the church, you know. But they were not the, 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 the powerful ones of society. They were the poor ones, the weak ones. They were the nobodies. The Corinthian church was like that. And, and, the, and the early church as a whole was like that. Now, there was more upper class people in the church as well in the first century, but overwhelmingly the church was made up of the weak and the nobodies. And it's actually the same today as well. And we shouldn't be deceived that you know, many of us are going to, in this church today are upper middle class because that's just not the case in the world. If you look at Africa, if you look at China, if you look at India and so on, the church overwhelmingly is still made up of the weak and the poor and, and the foolish in the world's eyes. But even if we are here smugly thinking that we are upper middle class, then we can think about our spiritual state before God. I mean, we have nothing to show before God. Apart from Christ, we are poor and weak and helpless and have nothing to offer God. We are destined for sin, for, for death and judgment. And the fact that Jesus had to go to the cross tells us immediately the desperation of our human state. We are also nothing before God without Christ. And in most of the parts of the world, the rich in the church are the minority. What was God's purpose in choosing the nobodies to be a part of his church? What was God's purpose in bringing uh, Jesus to die on the cross? It was so that all of our proud and arrogant boasting might be silenced once and for all, so that we'd humbly recognise that salvation is completely from God that all of, our, all of God's wisdom and redemption and sanctification come from him. So if we're Christians here, don't be proud that the reason that you're a Christian is because you worked it all out. <laughs> now you sat there, you studied, you went through it all, you worked it out, uh, what it was all about, what God wanted from you, and then you became a Christian. Because it just wasn't like that before at all. Verse 30 tells us why you are a Christian. Verse 30 says, and because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
You are a Christian because of God. Because God chose you to be a part of his kingdom. Because he opened your heart to the gospel and allowed you to see the cross as as wisdom and not folly. Don't ever boast that it was because of you, because of what you did, that you are here today. God has given you righteousness, sanctification and redemption because of his choice in uniting you to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see more of that next week. So let's not be proud or arrogant in boasting about who we are before God. Verse 31 tells us to obey the scripture of the Old Testament. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross says you and I are nothing. We are sinners desperately in need of salvation from God. The cross tells us the world's value system has been turned upside down. The cross tells us that what matters is not power and authority but love and sacrifice and service. So if we are going to keep the cross at the centre of our church, let us remember to be humble before God and to see our need, our desperate need for Jesus. If we can get that, we will always want to hear the gospel. Once you are, when you are relying on yourself, boasting in yourself, you'll never think you need the cross. But the moment you realise your state before God, then you will want the cross to be preached on every single Sunday, every week of the year. Let me come back to that crucial question that uh, we started this, uh, our time together today. Is the cross truly the centre of your life? Is the cross for you more than a fashion accessory, more than a decoration, more than just some event that happened 2,000 years ago? Is the power and wisdom of the cross the sole focus of your life and ministry or is it something else? Let me tell you, if it's not, this passage is telling you that you are a fool. If the cross is the centre, then it will be plain for all to see from the way that you live your life and it will be plain from this church what is preached and what we do, that we will always value gospel preaching from up the front, that we will always value it in our Bible study groups and that when we go out we will always remember to, to preach Christ crucified to our friends and family. And if we get all of that, then let us remember that in this country that we live in, in this denomination, and perhaps even in this church, there are many who have walked away from the cross and have gone to this worldly wisdom. And so as we meet people like that, may we also be at the voice like Paul that comes in and calls people back to the crucified king. And may we always continue to boast and glory in who he is and what he has done for us. I think we need God's help to do those things. So let's uh, pray and ask God for that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it teaches us that we who are often proud are nothing. And yet Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is everything. Father, we live in a world every day 
where this worldly wisdom penetrates us all the time, even in our churches, where we are tempted to walk away from the gospel message of the cross, where, where we are tempted to walk away from the gospel methods of preaching the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us in our lives individually, in our church corporately, to always keep the crucified Jesus front and centre. We pray that he would be what we preach. We pray that he would be how we live. And Lord, we ask that you would protect our church from awful divisions that come when we line up because of our worldly wisdom. Help us always to um, appreciate uh, everyone in our church who speaks the same about the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask that this gospel of the risen Jesus would continue to go out from here and that it would go out to all of this uh, denomination, all of this country, all of the world. And we ask for our friends and our family, uh, for others that we know, who do think that the cross is foolishness. Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help them to see Jesus for who he is, the Lord of glory and that they would turn and see the cross not as foolishness but as wisdom and power and that they would have salvation from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.